Man, the skeleton at the feast is you. I bet when you came to Waterstone today, you did not expect that all of our church staff would be confessing to you the ways that they have experienced road rage um, in different ways. Um, uh, but we chose that because we just wanted to start out this series by, or this message today by saying almost everyone at some point or another experiences some form of anger. And we can all relate to those people in Costco who push their carts too slowly and you just wish you could ram them in the back of the legs. Um, but I would also like to call your, that's not me, I would never, um, but I would also like to call your attention to the fact that um, my name, um, Paul Joslin, student pastor, did not appear anywhere on that montage, which is why I'm preaching the message on anger. The only one on our staff who does not experience anger. Not true, actually. Um, in fact, uh, I was pretty nervous about preaching this message because of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the one that I struggle with the most. Um, and I knew when I saw my name on the list that I was preaching today, it's like, oh my gosh, God is going to be trying to tell me something, and I don't want to hear it. Um, and so I just say that to, to start out the message by saying that most of the sermon I'm going to preach today, I am preaching to myself first. Um, and if you get anything out of it, then the Lord must be working. Um, because I do experience anger. I experience incredible road rage. Um, one example of that is uh, five years ago, I had just moved to Waterstone, and uh, yep, that's not a picture of me, but it could be. Um, I moved to, water, uh, to Waterstone and was a new pastor on staff uh, in the student ministries department, and on my way to church one morning, um, I was coming up Wadsworth to turn left onto Bowles to get to the church. Does anybody go that intersection ever? Um, there's this part of that intersection where there's a Starbucks, and it seems like everybody who comes out of the Starbucks needs to get across six lanes of traffic into the left lane, and they just kind of go, good luck everybody else, here I go, and they just like take it. Um, and this particular morning as I was driving along trying to get to that intersection, someone cut me off, and um, I got really angry, and thankfully, thankfully, um, because of where the story is headed, I didn't do anything too crazy, but I just kind of did one of these, like, what? Just like threw my hands up in the air looking like a monkey, like angry about what they had done, wanting them to know that I was displeased with how they had cut me off. Um, and as soon as I did that, I got this like nervous pit in the bottom of my stomach that I knew the person in front of me, but I was like new to town still, and I was like, nah, I don't know, but it's probably just something in my imagination. So I continued driving, and as the car in front of me turns left, and I turn left, um, we continue going the same direction all the way down Bowles. Um, and I get kind of trapped behind this car, and I can't get around, and I, I, I realized, wow, they're kind of going in the same direction, but still probably just a coincidence, no big deal. Um, then we get to Waterstone, and um, both cars turn into the parking lot. And it turns out it was another person on staff who had cut me off, and I was new to staff, didn't know them that well, and I had shown them my road rage. Um, and so we get out, we park, and um, she comes over to me, is like, I am so sorry that I cut you off. And I was like, I am so sorry that I showed you all of my road rage. <laughs> it was just one of those moments of, I don't know you that well, and I feel so much shame because I got caught, and now it's the person I know. Also, side note, working at a church and having road rage is really hard because if you cut the person off who cut you off or you've been having a road rage fit, and then you try to turn into church to go to work and someone sees you do that, you just feel guilty. And so most of the people on staff, as we were talking, we realized that when that happens, we actually just do like another lap around 
around like Bowles or Wadsworth <laughs> because we feel so guilty. Like, oh, they can't know that I'm pulling into the church parking lot. So I'll just go down and around again. And then um, sometimes it takes us a while to get to work, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so road rage, big thing that I struggle with. The second area that I struggle with anger, um, probably, probably more than almost any other, um, has to do with my second greatest sin which I will confess that to you as well. Um, my second greatest sin is that I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, and I, okay, I got some cheers. Thank you. I've been booed in every service, <laughs> but cheers. All right. Um, so I'm a Dallas Cowboys I said it was my sin. It's okay. Don't boo my sin. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, and if you were to just like look at a map of my life and look for these spikes of anger, Sunday afternoon is always like the time where it just shoots through the roof. Usually because a referee has taken it upon themselves to steal a victory from my Dallas Cowboys. And it was a catch, right? It was a catch. All right. And so, um, and so I just have this huge rage that, that spikes when I watch Dallas Cowboys games oftentimes because they're just actually losing. But here's the thing about it is a, a few years ago, I was watching a game, it's particularly a devastating Cowboys loss, and I leave my house after the game to go do something, and my neighbor um, walked out, and he was like, hey, sorry to hear about the Cowboys. That, that must have been a tough loss. And as I talk to him as if he has watched the game, I come to find out he didn't watch the game and knew the outcome because of my reactions. He could hear through the walls of our apartment <laughs> and the open window. And again, it was just one of those moments where I thought, this might be a problem and a little bit more than should be a reality in my life. Um, and while it is honestly, it is fun to talk about anger in some ways because anger can feel good and anger can be something that can help us get things done. Um, we can feel powerful when we are angry. I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that there is a superhero whose sole power is that when he gets angry, he turns into the most powerful rage monster ever and can blast through walls and anyone that's in his way. There's something that is powerful and, and feels enticing about the anger that we feel. But anger is also incredibly destructive. And, and while I can laugh about my road rage sometimes, and I can mostly laugh about the Dallas Cowboys, there are areas in my life where anger comes out that are not funny at all. Um, and to be honest with you, one of the places I experience anger the most, um, and where people in my life see anger the most, is in my family. And I get angry, I get loud, I yell, I shout, and it's ugly. And it's honestly one of my deepest sins and my deepest shames, is that when I don't get the things that I think I deserve, I respond in anger, and it doesn't matter who's in my path, I'm going to let them know that they should treat me differently. And the, the reality is that anger in our lives is a destructive force, and, and it can lead behind a wake of destruction in the relationships that we have and in the people that we love because of the way that we've treated them and responded to them in anger. And in fact, it's been said that anger can actually be one of the most destructive sins in our lives. Um, one theologian, <clears throat> Michael Mangus, he puts it this way in his book, Signature Sins. The sin of anger or wrath arguably causes more harm in our world than all of the other sins combined. All other sins can lead to anger. We easily lose track of the fact that our injured pride came first, or that our thwarted greed or spurned lust provided fertile ground for anger to take root. And man can anger take root. 
And when it does, it can leave behind a path of destruction. And it's easy to, to pinpoint different areas in our lives where we may have experienced anger and it has resulted in destruction in the lives of those we love and care about, whether it was anger that we put out on them or anger that they experienced from someone else. I mean, it can be the stranger who goes to work feeling worthless because someone just chewed them out because of their, their bad driving habits. Or, or it could be the coworker who dreads coming into work because they know when they get there, their boss is going to yell at them over and over and over again. Or it could be the child who cowers in fear before his mom or dad who has ridden them and lashed out at them for minimal mistakes that they continue to make. Or, or maybe... We see destruction of anger in, in the relationships and in, in someone who's held a grudge uh, towards a family member for five years over the one thing that that person said five Christmases ago. Or maybe we see the destruction of anger in the husband or wife who comes to their spouse and says, you need to get control. Your anger is out of control and it scares me. You see, we can, we can see the destruction of anger in our lives, and the reality is that while at times we can laugh at it, it is something that we need to hope for transformation in and long for redemption in. And, and there are so many times that the sins that we've been talking about in the Seven Deadly Sins series can feel like an oppressive weight that just we can't get freedom from. And that's why we've chosen to talk about them in depth each week, whether it be lust or greed or envy or anger is because this series is about hoping for transformation, hoping for the power of the cross to work in our lives in such a way that, that our sins would turn to ash in our mouth and that Jesus would become our prize and our treasure and that he would look better. But something that's unique about anger, as I was studying about, about it um, leading up to this message, is that it's actually fairly unique among the seven deadly sins. Because we can look at the seven deadly sins and we can all say, yeah, lust is a perversion of love and that's evil and that's wrong. Or we can look at envy or gluttony or greed and say, yeah, those result in evil. But the truth is when it comes to anger, there are times when it is destructive and when it is horrible and when it is evil and when it is sinful. But there are also times where anger can be leveraged for the good of this world and for the good of people in our lives. And so the trick for us today is to, to begin to understand what anger is, where it comes from, in order for us to turn it from that destructive force in our lives to a force for healing in our world and in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what anger is, why it's so destructive, and then how we can make it a force for healing and for change. And so if you would, pray with me um, before we jump into our text. <clears throat> Father, I come before you um, knowing that uh, I do not deserve to preach this message, um, that the anger that that's rests in my heart um, makes me completely unworthy to, to have anything up here to say. So I pray that whatever is said um, would come from you. Um, I pray that in the areas of our life that we experience anger, you would begin to convict us on. Um, the areas that, that we experience anger in ways we shouldn't would be changed and transformed into to using anger as a healing power. For your kingdom and your name, we pray. Amen. So our text today comes from Genesis, and we're going to be looking at a family, which let's face it, one of the most common 
context for anger is always family relationships. Um, So we're going to be looking at a family from Genesis uh, that deals with anger, and it leads to a lot of destruction in their relationships. And you may have heard this story before. It's a a story of a family of a, a father named Isaac, a wife named Rebecca, and then two sons named Jacob and Esau. And what's interesting about Jacob and Esau is that they are twins, but Esau's the oldest. He was born just before Jacob, and it actually says in the text that when he was born, Jacob was clutching at his heel, trying to come out first. And Esau is an interesting character to study in Scripture because from before he was born, it seems as if the the deck was stacked against him. And it seems as if he kind of just got the short end of the stick before he was even born. You see, before he was born, God came to Rebekah and Isaac and said, usually the blessing and the, the, the blessing of God and the inheritance goes to the oldest son. But God came to them and said, I actually want you to bless the younger son, Jacob. And I'm choosing Jacob to carry on my family blessing and the blessing of God's people, not the oldest, Esau. And what we see is that this command of God that, that Jacob will be blessed and Esau will be not blessed is that Isaac, the father, actually rejects the will of God and says in that moment, no, I don't want to do that. And we find out through reading the story that Esau actually becomes the favorite of his father, Isaac. And Esau is, is this man who, who's wild and ill-tempered and, and kind of impulsive. And, and it seems as if the, the favoritism that he was shown by his father leads him to this place where he's a spoiled young man thinking he deserves everything that he wants whenever he wants it. And the problem with that is, is God had told Isaac and the family before he was born that he was not going to be given the things that he thought were rightfully his. And we see that he's this impulsive person and that at different times he, he goes against the wishes of his parents because he's spoiled and gets what he wants. And so he marries these two women that he's not supposed to. At one point, he sells his blessing for a bowl of bean stew to his brother and says, you can have it if you give me this bowl because I'm hungry. And if you think about that for a minute, bean stew, yuck, but that's fine. That's what he wanted. So he gave it up his blessing and his inheritance for that. And it comes to the point where Esau is at, or sorry, Isaac is at the end of his life, and he's an old man entering his last days, and, and it tells us that he's blind at this point in his life. And at this point in the story, you've already recognized that Esau has been discredited as the person who should inherit the blessing of God's people. God has said that his will is for the younger brother to receive that blessing. And so when Isaac comes and says, it's time to give the blessing before I die, you expect him to call Jacob but he doesn't. He asks Esau to come to him and says, if you will go and hunt game and make a stew for me, I will give you the blessing of our family and of God. The the very thing that God had told him not to do. And so Esau leaves and he goes on a hunt, but while he's gone, Isaac's loving and faithful wife hears about what's happening and decides that she's gonna, gonna make sure the blessing goes to the rightful person. And so she creates this heist, this scenario where where Jacob can actually steal the blessing from his older brother Esau while he's gone. And so they dress him up in his brother's clothes. It says that Esau is hairy, so they put like fur on his arms to make him seem more like his brother and smell like his brother. She prepares the stew the way Esau would have prepared it, and he goes in to his father's tent and receives the blessing that God said he should receive, but that Isaac was going to give to Esau. 
And then just as, as Jacob leaves the tent and is making his getaway with his blessing that, that his father has given him, it says that Esau came, comes back. And he prepares the meal and he comes to his father and he says, all right, I'm ready to receive my blessing. And there's confusion between Isaac and Esau because Isaac knows that he's already given the blessing to another son. And we're going to listen in for just a moment on the conversation that they have. And I want you to note as I read the tones and the words of anger and bitterness that cloud their discussion. So if you would, follow along as I read. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I, I ate it just before you came and blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Then Esau said, Isn't it right that he is named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered, Esau, I have made him lord over you, and I have made all of his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with the grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And then Esau wept aloud. And his father Isaac answered him, and he said, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of my mourning my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. See, at the heart of this story of anger and betrayal and bitterness is the, the question that we have to wrestle with today, and that is this. Is Esau justified in his anger in this moment? Is he justified in his anger? Because after all, God chose another person over him before he was born. Before he had done anything to deserve it or not deserve it, God chose another person. And not only that, then his brother stole the inheritance that he thought was rightfully his. Is he right and justified in his anger and in his wrath? to the point where he is willing to kill his brother to get what he wants and thinks is rightfully his. The hard part about this text is that the answer that comes from Scripture, from the rest of this story, and from the other places Esau has mentioned, like in Hebrews or in the prophets, is that he is not justified. That when we remember Esau, we remember him as an impulsive, angry person who didn't do the will of God and whose anger was not justified. And that can be hard because we think our anger has justifications, but there's three reasons that we need to look at from the text about where Esau's anger came from in order to understand where it comes from in our own hearts in order for us to understand why it's so destructive. And so the first reason that we see that Esau is angry is because he is angry at God's will. And in his anger, he rejects God's will for his life. God clearly said that this is the way things ought to be. Your brother is going to be blessed. You will not. This is my will. This is what I want done. And Esau rejects it flat out. 
And the reason that this is so important is because the anger often comes from a desire to make our wills happen. Basically, when we are in anger, it is the statement, my will be done. And we know that that is problematic. One, um, the American Psychological Association puts it this way. The underlying message of highly angry people is that things ought to go my way. Angry people tend to feel that. Any blocking or changing of their plans is an unbearable indignity and that they should not have to suffer this way. Maybe the other people do, but not them. You see, anger has the power over our lives to make us blind to all other things that may be going on, all things that God may be doing in our lives in order to make sure that we get what we think is rightfully ours. And so we are willing to respond in anger about things that we have no right to be angry over. And we reject God's will in our lives. The second place that we see anger play out in Esau is that he has a disordered hierarchy of love in his life. Now you may be reading that and be like, what the heck is a disordered hierarchy of love? It's okay, I'll explain it to you. Um, A disordered hierarchy of love, basically think about it this way, right? Esau loves himself and he wants his father's blessings and his father's possessions for himself. And he wants those things so much and loves those things so much and loves himself so much that he is willing to kill his brother for it. Now we could all as objective people look at that situation and say, you shouldn't kill your family members over things you want. That's bad. But Esau is blind in his rage to that fact because he loves himself so much and he wants these things so badly and thinks that it is his right that he chooses anger to the point of wanting to kill his brother, who he should love more than these things. And any time in our lives where we are angry, it is a a representation of the condition of our heart. The things that we love matter so much to us that we are willing to do whatever we want in anger to make sure that we keep them. And if someone threatens those things, woe to them. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, anger is always an outgrowth of love. Anger is that which rouses you and rallies all of your faculties to defend that which you ultimately love. You get angry to the degree you love something. Anger is that which defends the thing that is threatened that you love. Your hierarchy of love is your hierarchy of anger. Things you don't love at all don't get you angry when they're threatened. Things you love a little get you a little angry when they're threatened. And things you love a lot make you very angry when they're threatened. You are as angry as you are loving, and you are angry when that which you love is threatened. That's what anger is. Now, I'd like to take a moment just to step back and and remember my love for the Dallas Cowboys to kind of help explain this. I love the Dallas Cowboys so, so, so much. They're very important to me. When I feel like a referee is about to threaten that love and their victory, I respond in anger. And it doesn't matter if that's a person or not or that I'm just watching a game. I want the TV to know that I don't like that person and that they deserve whatever else I might say that I won't repeat here. And the thing about it is, is my loving wife, oftentimes when I'm watching a football game and this happens and I get angry, she says, Paul, one, it is just a game. And secondly... That is a person created in the image of God. Do you think they deserve to be treated that way? To which I say, yes, because I love the Cowboys, but I'm wrong. (laughs) But the thing about anger is, is that in those moments when we love something, we are willing to do whatever we want to defend the thing that we love, even if it means defacing and, and, and being horrible and hateful and angry at someone who doesn't deserve it. 
And the reality is that, that what's so hard about anger is the third thing that we see from Esau, and that is this, that he has irrationally justified his anger to make it okay. I don't know if you noticed, but part of the interaction with his father, he says that this is the second time my brother has cheated me out of what is rightfully mine. But if you know the story, he sold that willingly in order to get soup. And so in his mind, he's been wrong twice, but that's not actually what has happened in his story. He's irrationally justifying the anger that he feels in order to make sure that he can continue down this path. And isn't that what anger does to us? We get so angry, so upset, so frustrated with what's going on that we say it doesn't matter what else has happened and we justify the things that we are choosing to do and say and the ways we are treating people because we have justified it in our minds. And we can come up with all sorts of crazy and irrational justifications for the sin of anger in our lives. And the problem is that when we do that, when, when we reject God's will, when we have a disordered hierarchy of love, and when we irrationally justify our anger every single time, it leads to destruction. And we see that in the life of Esau where his brother has to flee for his life. And we see that in our own lives too where destruction of anger has taken out everyone we care about. And there's three reasons that, that anger can be so destructive in our lives that I want to build off of the three that we just talked about. And the first is this. We get angry about things that we shouldn't get angry about. And when we get angry about things we shouldn't get angry about, it is always destructive. Always. I want to take a moment, and I'm going to read a list of some things that I think have made me angry in the past and, and have maybe made you angry as well. And as we look at them, I want you to be honest with like the level of, of anger that you might have felt over a few of these different situations. And, and maybe you could even assign a number of value to it. But here's, here's the list about what maybe makes us angry. A barista serves you a cold cup of coffee. There's a child who disrespects you. Maybe the person in front of you at Costco is pushing their cart too slowly. Or maybe a small group member holds different political beliefs than you. Or maybe your boss at work criticizes your work too much, and, you may, and that makes you angry. Or maybe the waiter is too slow at bringing the food that you want to eat. Or maybe your spouse misplaces your keys, but it turns out that it was you. That's my life all the time. <laughs> um, I get angry about things that I blame on other people irrationally justify, but actually, it was me who did it in the first place. Does these things make you angry? And I want to ask you as well, the last time that you were angry, if you're honest with yourself, there was something about what you were angry about that was you didn't get what you thought you deserved. And there could be all sorts of things that you thought you deserved in that moment that you didn't get that caused you to be angry. Maybe it was that you were seeking respect from someone, or, or you wanted affirmation. Maybe it was that you wanted power or convenience, cooperation, help, money, comfort, intimacy. Maybe you were desiring peace or pleasure or security, and when you didn't get that thing, you responded in anger. And you said, I want it my way. My will be done when you didn't get it. The other day I was shopping, and uh, I was in Target, 
and there was a little girl who, um, she was throwing one of those temper tantrums that you sometimes see in shopping centers, and it was in the toy aisle, of course, um, and she was just clutching this toy and, and kicking and screaming and fighting and, and so upset that she wanted this toy. It's mine. I want it. And the mom was saying, no, you can't have it. We're putting it up, and we're leaving. She had to pick the, her daughter up and carry her out of the store, and I thought in that moment, oh, man, poor woman. Like, that's just got to be so hard. I don't have kids, but that's got to be tough, and then my second thought was, what a ridiculous little girl. Like, how ridiculous are you that you are making this scene in this store about some toy that you want, and and how ridiculous is that? And then I had a moment where the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and it was one of those moments where you really wish the Holy Spirit didn't speak to you, but he very clearly said to me, do you not think that when you are angry about not getting your way, that you do not look just as ridiculous as that little girl. And you are a 30-year-old man. <laughs> I mean, it just, it floored me. And I, and I realize how many times I've been angry about things that I think I deserve or think are my right to have. And, and God must just think that I am this little child throwing a temper tantrum, looking at me, but like, you are ridiculous right now. And any time that we get angry about little things, things that we shouldn't, and have those kinds of reactions, it always leads to destruction in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And the second way that anger can can lead to destruction is if, if we get angry about things we shouldn't, there are things in this world that should make us angry that don't. And when we don't get angry about things that we should get angry about, it is sinful. And we see that over and over again in our lives. I want to read you another list. And I want you to be honest with if the things on this list have made you more angry than the things on the list we read previously. And I want you to be honest with the level of anger that you maybe feel. So here's the list. Children who are abused. Does that make you angry? A friend who expresses racism. Do you get angry at that? or an immigrant mother who is deported, or the Middle East refugee crisis, or childhood hunger, or the really hard one, your own sin. Have you ever been as angry about your own sin in your life as you have about the waiter who didn't bring your meal when it was supposed to be delivered? You see, there's so many things in our life that we should be angry about, but we spend so many times being angry about things that we shouldn't be angry about, that we can't see the things that actually matter. And one question that we have to wrestle with today is, do the things that make you angry anger God? Because that is the litmus test for our anger. The things that anger God should make us angry. And and I can guarantee you, God is probably not angry about the lady in Costco who drives her car too slowly, but he is angry about children who have been abused by their parents who were supposed to love and protect them. And which gets your anger going quicker? If I'm honest with you, the first type of scenarios, man, I can get hot so quick. And and these list of things that anger God, it's like trying to start a fire with a wet log. And I don't get angry the way I should about the things that I should. And that is sinful, and it is destructive to those people who need our anger to fuel the fire of their hope and their freedom from oppression and the things that are hurting them. And it's destructive when we don't. 
And the third place that anger is destructive in our lives is that we get more angry than we should. And I'd like to take a moment, if we could just take a test together, I'm going to have several illustrations of how we express anger in our lives. And if you resonate with one of them, I'm actually going to ask you to be vulnerable and raise your hand and say, yep, that is how I express anger. And remember, I've already done it, so I've gone first, so you're fine. No one's going to judge you. I'm preaching on it, so you guys are just going to have to sit there. It's great. Um, so the first way that we can express anger um, is like a volcano. I am a volcano, and this is what I mean by that. Things happen that make me angry, and I just let it sit beneath the surface. I don't show it. I remain calm. I'm chill. And then all of a sudden, something happens that twists or pokes or prods in a way that I didn't want and was too far, and I erupt like a volcano, and hot, fuming lava comes out over the person who just hurt me, and I don't care if they get burned or not. Anybody else ever experience anger like a volcano? Thank you guys. You guys are oh, so honest. Um, all right. Last night, it was funny. When I was preaching Saturday night service, uh, a little boy raised his dad's hand and said, that's him. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> Felt a little bad. We won't do that to you guys today. All right. Second way we can experience anger is like a forest fire. And this is what I mean by that. A forest fire gets sparked. And it doesn't matter what caused the spark. It just goes crazy and burns anything and everything in its path. You want everyone to know that you are angry, you are upset. It doesn't matter if they were the ones who inflicted the damage on you or not. You are just angry and you are going to burn anything that you can. Anybody a forest fire? Few? Okay. Thanks for your honesty. Third way that we can express anger is a smoldering fire. And, and that's this, is that you are angry, but you don't have any explosive emotions. It's kind of that just passive burn, where if anyone touches you, it's hot, and they know that they shouldn't because they're going to get burned, but it's just kind of this calm thing that can, and it lasts for a long time, right? You can hang on to that anger and that grudge and not be, yep, anybody? Okay, a few of you guys? Yep. And then the last way, um, I did ask my wife if I could use this because this is hers, and she said that it's okay um, that I share with you all that, but she is um, a firecracker or sometimes a bomb, but <laughs> what I mean by that is just this little, little fuse that, that goes, and then it explodes, but then it's done. It's fine. After the explosion is over, there's nothing else that needs to be done, and, and we can just move on. I got my anger out. It's good, and I'm still sitting there like, oh no, you just sparked me, so I'm going to fight back, <laughs> and she's like, why are you angry? Um, so anybody in here, a firecracker, just quick, hot, boom, done. Okay, a few of you guys, thank you all for your honesty. See, the reality is that, that we experience anger in many different ways, but oftentimes, the way we express our anger there's a reason I chose those four illustrations. There could be so many different ways that we could talk about anger. But these all have heat and explosiveness to them. And the reality is that our anger is exactly that. It is explosive, and there's a heat that feels good when it is burning. And we want to feed that fire. And the reality is when we feed that fire, it leaves a path of destruction in the lives of the people around us. And it's because we don't know how to appropriately show our anger. And a question for you to think about whether or not your response of anger is worth the offense is this. Is the level of your anger justified by its eternal significance? Is the thing that has made you angry worth the rage and wrath that you are willing to pour out on it? For myself, Dallas Cowboys, probably not. A child who's been abused, probably. We have to weigh the eternal significance of our anger. And, and when we begin to do that, when we begin to recognize the destructive ways that anger can affect us, 
and know where it comes from, we can actually begin to twist and turn it into a force for healing in this world. And again, there are three ways that correlate with the ones we've just looked at of how we can turn anger into a force for healing. And the first is this. We have got to learn to turn to God with our anger. And what I mean by that is, is there are so many times that we get angry that we just spew it out on whoever's around, but really what we should do is turn to God with our anger and vent to him because God is the only one who is big enough to receive and hear our anger. And we hear it over and over and over again in Scripture where we have Job or Jonah or the people that wrote the Psalms and they express their anger before God. Sometimes they are justified, sometimes they are not, but they express their anger and God is big enough to listen and to hear and to accept their anger. And when we turn to God with our anger, not only is he big enough to accept it, but he's also the only one big enough to recenter us. And we realize that, that the things that we've wanted or think we deserve are actually not that important. And that this life is not about our will being done, but God's will being done. And when we turn to him, it centers us and forces us to recognize, I am way out of line. And the third reason we turn to God, is he's the only place that we can find the forgiveness that we long for for the areas that we have spewed hate and venom and anger at the people in our lives. He's the only one big enough to forgive us and to still accept us despite the rage that we have inside. And not only do we turn to God with our anger in order for it to be healing so we can be forgiven, but we have to become a people who learn to turn over tables with our anger, to direct our anger at the correct channels, There's so many times where we're angry about things that we shouldn't be angry about, but we need to get angry about what makes God angry. We see this over and over again in the life of Jesus, Jesus, whether it's Mark 4, um, or Mark 3, sorry, where there's a man with a withered hand, and the Pharisees come to him, and they say, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus, with a burning passion of rage, is frustrated and angry at them because they are so hard-hearted and so about the rules and their self-righteousness and their own priorities that they don't care about this man who's injured. And in his anger, he turns to the man and says, give me your hand, and he heals him in anger. And, And then, of course, there's the famous passage where Jesus comes to the temple and he sees all of the, the greed and the injustice and, and the, the racial profiling that's going on there and all of the different things that they are doing to try to keep people from God's presence and make them pay to come in. And Jesus is furious. And he says, how dare you? And he turns over the tables in order to make sure that people can come to God as he wanted. And we need to be a people who learn to appropriately channel our anger for those places where people are longing for deliverance and hope and freedom. And when we do that, it leads to healing in their lives. Martin Luther King is famous for saying that that he could not follow a Messiah who did not turn over tables. Because when you are confronted with racial injustice or, or the injustice of poverty or hunger, you want a Savior that is willing to turn over tables and make things different and set things right. And we have to be a people who are willing to do that. So we need to get angry about what God gets angry about and turn over tables. And the third one, third way that we can turn anger into a a force for healing 
is honestly the hardest one. I am terrible at it. But we need to become a people who learn to turn the other cheek. And we need to become a people who when we are insulted or when someone comes at us, we are willing to forgive them. There is a power in forgiveness. We love the power of the rage that builds up when someone's wronged us and we let them have it. But there is a, a power deeper in forgiveness. Anytime my wife are fighting um, and one of us forgives the other person before the other one has asked to be forgiven, the anger goes from a 10 to 2. And to be honest with you, my wife is often the one who apologizes first. But we need to be a people who are willing to forgive and, and let go of the power of our anger in order to forgive others and turn the other cheek. Now the problem with this is, is none of us on our own is willing to do that. None of us is willing to look at the anger in our lives and say, yep, I'm going to give up that power, I'm going to let it go, and I'm not going to be angry, and I'm going to forgive you. Because the reality is we love that power, we love turning into the Hulk, and we want people to suffer when they wrong us. But the power, the model that we follow is Jesus, who took the wrath of God upon himself and took all of the anger and violence that we could offer and that we put upon him. And his response in that moment was forgiveness. And he did not smite us, though he could have. He chose to forgive us. And we need to follow that same calling to be a people when we are feeling like someone has wronged us, that we are willing to say, you are forgiven. And that power comes from the cross. C.S. Lewis says, that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. There are people in this room who inexcusable things have been done to you, and it is incredibly hard to forgive, incredibly hard. But the call of the Christian is to learn to turn that anger as a passion and force for healing for others and to be willing to forgive. And so to close today, we're going to take a moment and we're going to turn to God in our anger by reading collectively a psalm together. And in this psalm, there's a, a, the first portion that it's really just the, the writer venting to God about the things that are wrong with the world that may or may not be justified. In fact, in this particular psalm, it's probably not. They're receiving a punishment from God, but they're venting to him about it. And then the second portion of this psalm is about turning over tables, asking God to set things right that are wrong and learning to use our anger for that. And then the third part of this psalm is, is an asking of forgiveness for the areas that we have shown anger in ways that we shouldn't, where we have been more angry than we should, and where we have not been angry about what we should. So if you would, um, if you feel comfortable uh, of reading this psalm together collectively as a confessional, I would encourage you to stand um, with me to read it as a declaration of... Um, our uh, repentance before God for our anger. <clears throat> oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. 
We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the condemned they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. Before we close, I'd like to take just one moment for uh, us to take a, a space to search our hearts. And I would encourage you to take a moment to ask God to reveal to you the areas in your life where you need to learn to turn over tables and the areas in your life where you need to learn to turn the other cheek. And then we'll close with a, a reading of the sinner's prayer. So just take a moment um, and then we'll dismiss. Would you pray with me? Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Heavenly Father, we do ask for mercy. We recognize within us that, that we have mishandled our anger, and that anger in our hands always leads to destruction. I pray, Father, that we would learn to, to turn anger to you, um, that we would give it to you, and that you would make us the people who learn to turn over tables to get angry about the things that make you angry. And, and Father, I pray for the grace to turn the other cheek in areas where we should learn to do that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.